This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. World Water Day celebrated annually on the 22nd of March is all about focusing attention on the importance of water. So while many of us over here in the Klang Valley don't give a second thought about having access to a safe and clean supply of water, other Malaysians aren't as lucky. So today on the show, I'll be speaking to Celine Lim. She's the manager of Save Rivers about how so many indigenous communities in East Malaysia, particularly in Sarawak, still do not have access to clean portable water and we're also going to discuss the factors contributing to these communities being deprived of this and other basic human rights. Welcome Celine, how are you today? I'm good and thank you so much Juliet for having me again. Uh, So yes, I'm good. Safe Rivers is doing well and we are absolutely excited that uh, traveling is now much easier uh, going into the villages uh, in Baram. So yes, we're Mm. excited about that one. Okay, excellent. And that is a huge component of your work, isn't it, Celine? Um, tell me, yes. how are things, how are you guys? My gosh, these two years have been crazy for everyone, must have been crazy for you as well. Yes, I think the one word to probably describe what's been happening uh, in regards to our work is really just having a lot of things postponed. Uh, we can't go into the village. It's very hard to engage uh, into the issues that's affecting the villages. Uh, on the ground, so we have built we have built quite a network of at least representative of the villages in the city themselves in the city itself. So it has been again the the good thing about it was we form a pretty tight network uh, with the villages that are in the city. Uh, but again, when it comes to touching on the issue itself on the ground, we are just absolutely glad that we could start our traveling. Uh, now. So maybe for those that don't know who we are, uh, Save Rivers is an NGO or civil society organization also that is based in Miri, Sarawak. Uh, We actually work specifically uh, with a lot of communities, with a lot of indigenous communities that are in Baram. Uh, So Save Rivers have been supporting and empowering these rural communities uh, in regards to how to protect their land, rivers, and even through uh, even watersheds uh, through a lot of methods like capacity building, networking, researching, uh, education, and even advocacy. So just to let you know the background of Save Rivers, we actually, the Save Rivers Network uh, came together, uh, the people and the group came together uh, in 2011 uh, because of a proposed uh, Baram Hydroelectric Dam project that that the state government proposed to uh, to make happen in Baram. Mm. Uh, so there's a network of people and group that came together to oppose it. So it is uh, potentially that particular project was going to displace at least 20,000 people and around 25 longhouses. So what happened was in 2012, thank God, uh, the dam project was then shelved by our then Sarawak uh, CM Tan Sri Adenan Satim after a document containing thousands of signatures protesting the dam came from the villages themselves. So that has been an epic win on, on our end when it comes to community-led efforts. Mm-hmm. So it has really been it has really been the backbone of, of what Safe Rivers is, which is it is a community-led, it is from the grassroots level. So again, being able to travel into the villages in Baram, it's it's uh, finally we're able to just breathe, like, you know. So yeah, we're looking forward to that. And I think that's the current update. We're excited to be able to travel. And yeah. 
And that is such a critical component of your work, right? Talking to the people, you yes. know, helping them understand what is happening because a lot of the time they are either misinformed or misled. And so, you know, giving them uh, access to information and then having them make their own decisions, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. So uh, again, uh, to be able to do that, uh, uh, it, 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 it feels like going back to what we are supposed to be doing. So yes. <laughs> okay, excellent. I'm so happy to hear that because I'm sure there's a lot of things pending. And um, today, of course, we want to focus on uh, um, on World Water Day, which was just yesterday, right? So I think it's worth reminding mm. ourselves that water is a very basic human right. And I think, you know, others have said this before me, of course, they've said that it's a prerequisite for realizing all other human rights, including the right to life itself. I, I don't know if you agree. To, yes. uh, agree. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Right. And I do. I do. Because water is life, you yes. know, and, and to not have access to that is really taking away all the other thing that's connected to to it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I think most, if not all Indigenous peoples share a sort of ethos, right, for living in harmony with nature. Um, they take pride in uh, in their respect for the earth and her resources. I'm just curious, you know, does water have any sort of traditional significance for uh, Indigenous communities in Sarawak in particular? I would say when we talk about water, like the immediate visual that comes to an Indigenous mind would be the river. So when you talk about river, that is really the that is really the identity uh, that uh, the basic identity for for even an indigenous community. For example, even the name. I, I come from a, a village in Lower Baram that's called Long Pila. The name Long is actually a convergence of two rivers. That's what it means in Kenya and and in Kayan. So when I say I'm from Long Pila, it means that hey, I'm from a river that is called Pila that converge into the main. Uh, river Baram. So what it says here is my the very identity of my community is is river based. Like I have a river based address. So that's really how we would view uh, water. So so that's the visualization of water. When when you when you tell me about you know when the name water comes out, I envision river. Uh, and again, why is the river important? Because it is really the river that the the kampung life revolves around, you know, uh, fishing, uh, going from, it is also a mode of transportation, logistic. So the life of the kampung does revolve around the river. Mm. So, yes. And of course, that makes so much sense as to why dams are so, well, damming lah for, for communities, isn't it? Because... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because by doing that, you are you are really taking away the very identity of the indigenous communities, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Okay. All right. And um, any other experiences you want to share, um, you know, based on, you know, being someone from the Kayan tribe? Yes, I think for me, uh, I would probably base it on my experience, but this one is uh, engaging or tapping a little bit on the uh, on the nostalgic and the romantic side of things. Huh. Uh, I mean, the earliest memory that I had was as a child going up the river with my grandparents. And I remember, I remember even at that young age that this kind of journey was always pleasant. It always It was always adventurous. My grandparents would point out to us like the rich... Uh, uh, biodiversity, the life that was along the river. So it has always been in my mind. That was how that was how the river was. It was life. It was full of life. It was rich. Uh, so yes, I think I think when it comes to my own experience, I would I would probably use that. And also to Mandi Sungai lah. Everybody does that <laughs> when you go up to the village. Yeah. I think I have to be very thankful that my parents 
have always been absolutely supportive of us engaging into our uh, indigenous roots. So when we go back to the kampong, it doesn't matter if we get dirty, we get into the mud, as long as we understood what it meant uh, to be an indigenous person going back to their roots. So yeah, it the river has always been the hub for life in, in the village. Yeah, always flowing, always yeah. moving, you know, a source of life, a source of communication. Always everything. moving, exactly, exactly. Okay. I agree. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, that's really, really interesting. And I was reading this article, um, but this is from last November, mm. right? And it quoted the then Sarawak Utilities Minister, Dr. Sri Dr. Stephen Rundi Utom, as saying that current water supply coverage in Sarawak was about 84.3%, with 99% in urban areas and six. 66.5% in rural areas. Um, I'm just curious, you know, I mean, you've already established how important water is and how much it means to everyone. What can you share about the live realities of those living in rural areas, you know, and, and their sort of access to water? I don't know what I can comment on the statistic, but what I can comment definitely is really the realities on the ground itself. Lah. So the thing about the communities that we reach out to, and even my own community in, in Baram, uh, we do not have access to treated uh, clean water. Uh, there are there are pocketed efforts and even pocketed projects uh, of... of I, I know of only one... Uh, water treatment plan that are in there is in Lower Baram in one of the kampong. Mm. Uh, but besides that, besides that, it's up to the village uh, themselves to think of a water system for their own village. They can access to grants and everything, but again, the proactiveness totally have to come from the village themselves. So if you are not informed mm -hmm. of some of these grants or you're not informed on some of this system, you are probably going to be left out in, in accessing some of this uh, uh, clean water system and so on. So, uh, yeah, so currently, uh, even in my own village, we don't really have an access to treated clean water. Uh, but most villages have design system that enables them to access to maybe natural sources of water. Uh, some of them, actually, most of them build gravity feed water system where it is sourced from higher altitude area. Uh, some, even in my kampong, also still rely on rainwater. Oh. So that's the, that is the reality of, of some of these communities that are in Baram. So, mm. yeah. Okay. I mean, that's really shocking, isn't it? That you have to know about these grants and apply. I mean, as we've already said, it's a basic human right. It should be up to the state to ensure that, you know, all of its people are, you know, uh, supplied with adequate clean water. Yes, it is. It is. It's SDG number six. Yes, SDG number six. <laughs> we will talk more about that. Um, but let's just go for one quick break, Celine. I'm speaking today to Celine Lim. Mm. She's the manager of Safe Rivers. It's World War it was World Water Day yesterday, and we're talking we're focusing today on water issues uh, still facing some indigenous communities in East Malaysia, particularly in Sarawak. Um, Celine, of course, is part of uh, Save Rivers, which is an a civil society group which supports and empowers rural communities to protect their lands, rivers and water sheds. We're going to continue that discussion after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It was World Water Day yesterday and we're taking a look at some of the issues still, you know, faced by communities in Malaysia. They don't have access to clean, portable water. Joining me today is Celine Lim. She's the manager of Save Rivers. Save Rivers is, of course, a civil society group supporting and empowering rural communities through um, networking, um, networking research, education, advocacy and capacity building. And this is all to protect their lands and rivers and watersheds. So, um, uh, before the break, Celine, you shared, you know, how water is uh, an intrinsic part, you know, of uh, Indigenous communities' lives, um, even for you growing up, right? It's a source of life. Um, and I think, you know, as we've spoken about before, uh, you know, all these issues that Safe Rivers also works on, you know, logging, mining, uh, I mean, well, protesting these these developments, of course, logging, mining, massive development projects, um, especially those hydroelectric dams in Sarawak, right? They're destroying the remaining forests of the region. Um, maybe you can help explain how these mega projects like actually affect the communities in terms of their access to water. Mm, I think I'm going to use probably uh, real life examples of, of friends of ours that we know in places like Murum and Bakun, mm. uh, which already by now have their uh, mega hydro dam projects uh, installed. Yeah. So a lot of this, uh, so because of the project, uh, there have been massive relocation that has taken place, right? It has been extremely, even until now, an extremely difficult transition. Uh Right now, even 10 years down the road, probably 12 years down the road, their very cultural landscape has really changed so much. Uh, a lot of their cultural markers have really been taken away mm-hmm. from, from their uh, everyday routine, you know. Yeah. So, yes, the government did provide resettlement areas for the villages, uh, but it's also in areas where it is really void of the rich diversity that the communities for generations were thriving in. You know, things that became really their cultural markers were completely taken away. Uh, So they may, these communities in the resettled areas may have access to treated clean water, but also to what expands are. Because right now, even the rivers that they are so used to, uh, their natural landscape and even a lot of their farmlands are completely submerged. So if you want to ask about the effects of, of projects like this or development like this, uh, where, again, I want to really state here that we, our communities are not against development. But if it is a development project that is done in a way where they were never fully consulted or even informed, then it really does infringe um, their very basic rights as communities that have been living there for centuries, for ages. Yeah. So I guess this is where we're trying to hit. We're not against development, but if, it's a, if it is a development that is not sustainable, that have not really gone through the ethnic procedure properly, then the communities have all the right to question the progress of the development or even the approval of the development. So, yes, so that's where I probably could say how it affects by giving you a real-life example of even Bakun and Murum. Yeah, I mean, completely submerged. I mean, there's no there's no way of ever getting that back. It's gone, like, forever, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Centuries old uh, custom or even they, they talked about even murals that were drawn by their ancestors. These are all gone, you know, and yeah, it we are now at this side of history and we can never claim that back again. Okay. All right. And of course, you know, all of these projects also change the biodiversity of the area, the ecosystems of the area, right? All of that is um, affected as well. Uh, Maybe you can remind our listeners how Indigenous communities are affected by these particular changes. 
Uh, so the thing here is, I kind of hope our listeners don't see themselves as very as divorced from the bios- biodiversity or even the ecosystem that is in places far flung, supposedly lah, far flung places like Upper Baram yeah. or whatever. Because I really am a true believer that that these extreme drastic changes in our biodiversity and ecosystem eventually will affect all of us, mm. right? So mm. the thing here is, um, for centuries, the indigenous communities have understood that nature has a system uh, of an inbuilt barrier, or even, even seasons of things, right? And everything is connected. So when an area is developed without proper sustainable way of doing it or even respecting the balance of things, we know for sure it will affect other things, right? Yeah. So even right now, for example, right now, for example, we now have more uh, reoccurring events of flooding or even flash floods in, in Baram area. Uh, the, uh, so not only that, even I th- a year or uh, a year ago, even in the highlands, we had experiences of flash floods like highlands, you know. The highlands. So on... Yes, we have videos of it going around and like, so I mean, yeah, so social media now is, you know, on that. So we were able to collect a lot of the videos that were happening, uh, the flash floods that were happening even in the highlands. So flash floods, but still the fact that it's happening in the highlands, that begs some answers, right? So villages on the ground are even stating uh, rising, rising river water level. Uh, these there are even erosions along the riverbanks. So these are all happening a- a- at the moment. So I'm also going to take one example. Even Long Ikeng, uh, one of the village in probably mid Baram, uh, they're even they're even contemplating of moving the the long house uh, from where it is now to to a higher level. They are also talking about relocating the church. Why? Because the river is swelling, and the thing here is no one has an answer. No one. No one could tell us why this is happening. So again, you find the indigenous communities in this interesting spot of not understanding why are these things happening mm. uh, to our environment and to us. And and we we don't, there is no research, probably not a lot of data or statistics that backs up what's happening. And the thing here is, I feel this is something that we should know because we are affected by all yeah. of these changes. Yeah. So yeah, I mean they keep saying unprecedented, right? But you know it's occurring more and more frequently. So you can't really say that it's unprecedented anymore because um it seems to be that's going to be the reality, isn't it? Right. And the thing here is there must be a cause or maybe causes. Yeah. But the fact that the fact that we were to just say that it's unpre- unprecedented and and label is as as that without further need to research, further need to understand, uh, that probably that. Is, but the thing is, in reality, this is the real daily life of the communities that are in Baram. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that, you know, uh, based on the communities that you work with through Safe Rivers, right? Um, are Indigenous people's access to water resources um, actually protected, you know, from encroachment? And, you know, when you talk about floods and things like that, I mean, that also comes with pollution and, you know, um, there's unlawful pollution as well, right? As, as industries open up around um, around these Indigenous uh, communities' uh, homes. Right. I think, I think when it comes to, uh, when it comes to this conversation, there's really myriads of factors or even prerequisite <laughs> uh, conditions that has brought us to where we are. Like, for one thing, even our constitutional land code does not necessarily take into account the uh, indigenous 
uh, view of even land ownership, like for example, mm. right? Mm. Uh, so it so it brings us back to where we are now. Uh, like, how do we even have the capacity of protecting some of this? some of these uh, sources of water, like natural sources of water from encroachment and unlawful pollution. Just now I talked about how some of the villages, they build this, you know, gravity feed yes. and higher elevated level water sources. The thing here is we don't have a guarantee that these water level, uh, these sources, these water sources will not be contaminated, will not be polluted. Because again, we, we, uh, we cannot even control what's happening even maybe further up or even in an area that is further down from where the water sources is. So again, the indigenous community is left in that position where, you know, where, when we were doing it our way or even our worldview, there was that balance. But all of a sudden now, we don't even know where, where, where this encroachment can happen, where the, where the yeah. pollution can happen. So you don't know where to even begin yeah. uh, to understand what's happening to you and what's happening to your community. So yes, so currently there there is really nothing much to protect yeah. our water sources against encroachment or even pollution. No, nothing no, much. Nothing. And maybe I, when it happens, then they <laughs> then they start thinking. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what you said is it's really sad because you're just living with it. You're living with the consequences of it, even though you know you didn't cause it. Um, and yeah, no explanation given, no help given. It's just yeah, you're just expected to to live with it. Yeah, I mean, I know they say indigenous communities are resilient, but uh, but that the fact that they always find themselves in a place where you just were forced to adapt uh, that that is yeah that is not right in my books. <laughs> Shouldn't be right in anyone's books, uh, Celine. You're so right about oh, that. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, and then I, I guess you know. Would you agree that you know the burden falls on? It should fall actually on the Sarawak state government to ensure that the right to water is respected, especially for indigenous communities. My answer to that is absolutely yes. <laughs> it is now. The, and the reason why I say this, the reason why I say this respectfully, uh, it's because it's only the state government or even the government that has the influence and even the capacity to implement and ensure that the right to water is respected. You know, uh, it is one. In fact, one of the only way that we can consider it to be truly impactful and comprehensive uh, when we talk about even Baram in its wholeness. You know, mm-hmm. so. Yes, I would say yes. The burden, the burden must be on on our elected officials, and yeah, yeah, and and not on you know just the indigenous communities to sort of adapt and and you know deal with it in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. exactly. And and do you think like you know any of the government led initiatives so far, um, you know, have they been effective at all to address the problem uh, from an indigenous perspective, or quite the opposite? Maybe I could use one particular example uh, for our interview today. And this is because it's coming from the communities themselves. Uh, Here, I would like to applaud uh, the efforts that is uh, known as the SARES initiative. It is the Sarawak Alternative Rural Electrification Scheme that is run by Sarawak Energy. Mm -hmm. So what it is, in essence, is a solar panel electricity generation efforts. Uh, And the thing here is... uh, like probably eight years ago, 
nearly all the communities in Baram were running electricity through the ge- generators, okay. you know. So it's only recently that, that SARS has been implementing this. Uh, a lot of the villages are, are uh, getting on board of the bandwagon for this one. And the thing here is it is also, it is also a right uh, for the village in Baram to actually have access to electricity. So right now it, it is giving around, uh, I think it's providing around three kilowatts to five kilowatts per day per household. Okay. Uh, it, a little, it is limited, but again, to where, yeah, sometimes, sometimes you look at it, you are thankful that you have it, but you also think about the, the full capacity of your rights as citizen and you realize, huh, shouldn't we have this even many years ago? Yes. So, you know, I can go through that, but let's not. Uh, but yeah, so I, I must I must applaud that just because, again, from the communities themselves, us working with the communities, a lot of them have come with a, definitely a more thankful and a grateful tone for that. It, it shows that it is something that is absolutely needed. So, uh, so yeah, and the thing here is, it is also in this same area. Uh, I talked about the the Baram uh, uh, Dam that was proposed and it was shelved in in 2012. Uh, so in that same area, just before 2012, uh, this area again was set aside for the proposed Baram Mega Hydro Dam project. And I remembered how also at that time a local assemblyman actually said uh, that that the community saying no to the dam is actually them saying no to development, right? Ugh. So, in fact, if you... Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> in fact, if you look at it, it is really... It is really... That should not be even in... Uh, it, it shouldn't even be vocalized, you know? Because for the communities to have access to, to clean water and even electricity, that is their very basic amenities, mm. right? Yeah. And for them, for you to actually say that, you know, because you say no to the dam therefore there is no development uh that that uh that it it pictures the communities there as second grade citizen and that should not happen at all you know so so today uh just looking at how Cyrus is capable uh, mm. of running this scheme which is which is it's an alternative uh, uh source of electricity smaller scale projects because it's village based right so it actually shows that this kind of smaller base alternative project can work. So it, it is not this mega dam development. So I'm just saying that if SARS can do that, which is backed by the government, then I think we are capable, we are highly capable of thinking of smaller scale, sustainable projects that could really develop the communities that are in Baram. So, okay. yes. All right. I mean, that's an excellent um, example. Thank you for sharing that, Celine. And, um, you know, is the state sort of providing resources for uh, Indigenous peoples to design, to deliver, I guess, you know, to control their own access to water in any way at all that you know of? Uh, I do know that there is uh, there are resources also in the forms of grants. Uh, for example, the MRP, which is Minor Rural Project Grants, are actually available. But again, uh, I go back to uh, one of my earlier statements that mentions that it is only the villages that understands, you know, that there is this grant, they know how to access it, okay. and the system, and then, then you will you will be able to access the the grants. But the thing here is, I think what Barams need, what Baram needs, is not pocketed uh, uh, efforts like that. It, it must be something all comprehensive. What happens to one village also also happens to the other village. So uh, that would probably be uh, my comment on on that particular efforts. 
Uh, so yeah, there are grants. There absolutely is. But do you really put the burden on the communities to actually be the ones to know about all of these grants when really it should be the burden of the government, right? Yeah, to to provide, as we said, a very basic human right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay, but I mean, I mean that said, right? What role do you see indigenous peoples playing? Uh, you know, what role do they play in, I guess, developing, maybe managing and protecting natural spaces and ecosystems? You know, which in turn can affect their access to clean and safe water. We always talk about, you know, um, uh, them having their input, their their say, and things like that. Yeah, maybe you have anything you'd like to comment about that? I think on a general uh, uh, blanketed. Uh, statement. Uh, the thing here is this is really uh, a place and a role that is rightfully theirs. Yeah. Uh, for once, it is their it is their land, it is their 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 communities. Uh, and the thing here is for for the indigenous communities living in uh, the area for centuries has cultivated a, a wealth and an amount of knowledge and skills uh, that where where it can help to inform us on how to even live in balance and sustainable, even with our own ecosystem. Like you just spend, you just spend a week in, in any of the villages, you will come out very richly uh, informed and even appreciative of, of the, the beauty of our ecosystem and how everything is balanced. And the thing here is this community carries with them centuries or proven uh, skills and knowledge on how to tap into this without destroying uh, the environment, you know? So so that I feel like that's such a win-win situation when you allow the communities to actually voice out their opinions or even ha- even to just really listen. I think the problem sometimes is us not really listening to what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, to provide them that space, that is our that is our responsibility. You know, you can't say that you can't say that, oh, like, you know, they had nothing to say or whatever. They have nothing to say when you never provided them an avenue to voice out. Uh, uh, their concerns or even their perspective to begin with. So, yes. Okay. All right. And and of course, you know, um, on a policy level, right, how must or can we ensure that Indigenous people are included in the decision-making uh, processes, you know, and the management of all of these different ecosystems? I think right now, uh, what is the stage that we're still in is really we should be creating even a greater awareness that there is really, one, a lack of real representation of the Indigenous people mm-hmm. in policies that directly affect them. Uh, and I in, in, that same, in that same conversation about awareness too, they, the Indigenous communities must be well informed, again, of the system that they can access to uh, in regards to getting their perspective uh, highlighted or even elevated, right? So they, if you speak to any of the everyday people in the communities, they will actually tell you that they don't know what to do. You know, they can write to their YBs and all, but uh, if there is no response, what's next? Mm. So you don't, you don't have that kind of civil, uh, civic, uh, awareness of what is their right as a community to to even talk about or bring up their perspective. So yes, uh, I think even right now, what is in greater need is really that education and that awareness uh, that this is their rights. And when they when they ask for it, it is it is really should be something so normalized. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. 
and, and they shouldn't think how do I say this they shouldn't think that they are in the wrong in any way because they are it's it's their lack of um I guess understanding of these things which is why they are ultimately exploited right and they lose you know what is a, um yeah what is theirs love pretty much right yeah okay yeah. all right and I think I look forward to the day when when them voicing uh, their concerns or even their opinion become really very normal yeah uh, and and it should you know. Yeah, I mean, and not having to do yeah. blockades or, or, you know, having their assemblymen call them anti-development and, you know, horrible things like that. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I, just just one, a couple of things more before I let you go, Sadeen. Um, Are there any sort of indigenous sustainable solutions for protecting water? I mean, still since we're on the topic of water that you are familiar with that you'd like to share? Anything at all? Um, I I would probably tap into uh, something that we're also working on in our in our kampong. Uh, it is something that is known as uh, the tagang system. Uh, in in essence, it's actually a age old proven way of protecting and even replenishing river life. Uh, we will not take credit for this. This is to our Iban community's counterpart uh, that have figured this out. Uh, centuries ago and and right now a lot of communities are trying to just adapt this so in essence how it works is you have this stretch of river that as a community uh, you have agreed to protect so what happens here is no one no one uh, no one goes fishing that area is protected the fish are being fed uh, every day there is this schedule where the villages kept uh, keep to where they go in and make sure that that uh, the the life the river life is is protected uh, and for probably two three years no one no one touches that river for fishing mm-hmm. so after two three years as a community collectively they will harvest uh, the the river and then once they harvest it and they just again for two three years they will not disturb it they let the river life replenish. So again, if you notice, a lot of the indigenous lifestyle and even perspective has always has always pivoted on that, which is there will be a time where I will gather and where I will take, but there will also be a time where I will, I will allow the land to replenish. I will allow the river to replenish. So again, I feel... I feel this is the rich understanding that indigenous communities can actually bring even into international conversation on conservation and sustainable uh, lifestyle. So I think, yeah, so that would be one, that tagang system that I would I would probably zero on mm-hmm. because it's something that I'm a bit more familiar. Uh, there may be some that I'm, I'm, I will not talk about in this interview because I'm not familiar. Okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, everything you said, it makes so much sense, right? I mean, that's just a logical way of doing things and you, you cannot have, you know, infinite growth on a, on a finite planet. And, and and likewise, you know, you cannot exactly keep, yeah, extracting, you know, um, infinitely exactly. from a finite resource. Yeah. At the end, I think for all our survival sake, the idea of the give and take, the knowing the season of, of like when to push and when to hold back. Um, again, I don't know, is it our contemporary mindset to just take, take, take and take? Uh, maybe we have been molded so much into a consumer uh, mindset that sometimes we, we really forget this rich understanding uh, of life um, where, again, it's a give and take. Uh, we're living in an ecosystem that's a lot bigger than us, but it is yet still fragile. So we do play a part even in conserving and protecting this ecosystem. And in the end, the ecosystem will also somewhat protect us. 
Yes, I mean, when we've seen what happens, right, when we don't protect it and how it comes back to bite us. I mean, we're seeing it all across the world, the climate crisis, we're seeing it in our neighbourhoods, in Klang Valley, in Sarawak, wherever it's happening, the floods, yeah. landslides, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. in massive amount, yes. Massive. I guess, you know, you know, before I let you go, Celine, I mean, what do you hope, uh, yeah, what are your hopes? You know, what do you want to see happen, uh, especially with regard to all of the things that we were just discussing? I think, um, I mean, call me idealistic or whatever, but uh, the thing here is I I do hope to see a future where the understanding of sustainable uh, uh, development projects and even respecting the FPIC, uh, the free prior informed consent of a community, you would actually reap a greater economic growth that is long-term and sustainable and a win-win for all, you know. Uh, but the thing here is, um, I, I truly believe the planet has more than enough for all of us. Uh, it's just, it's not enough for our greed, that's all, you know. But uh, I think, again, for Indigenous communities, even more so, why voicing this out uh, really would have a ripple effect uh, because Unless we speak up, then it's only one way of looking at things. And here we are as an indigenous communities and telling and trying to put the word out there that, you know, there are days that we need to give and there are days that we we take and there are days that we don't take. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think that's my hope that uh, we would we would progress as a, as a society. We would progress as a civilization and understanding that that sustainability at the end of the day, I mean, right now you could, you could say that uh, they are anti-developments, but in the long run, we're talking about sustainability and something that will benefit all of us, even as, uh, as, yeah, as oh, people survival. on this planet. Yeah. All of our survival, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a catchphrase right there, Celine. You know, we have enough for our need, but not enough for our greed. You need to make that into a tagline somewhere. <laughs> ah, yes, let's see. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, Celine. On sustainable stickers, yes, hopefully. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining me today, Celine. Before yeah. uh, I let you go, um, thank you for having me. Any last message, uh, just in conjunction with World Water Day, perhaps? Okay, so I think um, I, just that focus, la, that water is is really truly life and uh, that is really a basic rights for for everyone. And when we when we disrupt or even pollute it, we literally do murder life, you know, and I think understanding the consequences of our actions and knowing that we all play a part in this planet. Yeah, so I think that would be my final message that water is really life and let's conserve it together la, in whatever efforts that we can. So yeah, okay. and visit us on saferivers.org. Yes, I was just going to say, you know, find out how you can be part of the solution and not the problem. Uh, head to saverivers.org. You guys also have social media channels, am I correct? Yes, we do. Okay. Yes, we do. All right. So uh, the usual yeah. Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Yes, how about yes. TikTok? Can are you find guys us on there? TikTok? Uh, no, we are exploring that, but okay, yeah, that's I next. Think we need younger bloods, younger bloods in the office to get that launched. Okay, but I mean, if um, but the easiest thing, of course, would just be to head to the website. Everything else will be linked there. Exactly. Yeah, my thanks exactly. again to you. I've been speaking to Celine Lim, manager of Save Rivers. Uh, we were talking about some of the water issues that are still running deep over in Sarawak. If you miss any part of today's conversation or any of our previous Earth Matters interviews, you can download the podcast at bfm.my/earth, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.